Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned, discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit Learner.co. That's Learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the Learner.co show. Today we have Meta Parlakar. She's the CTO and co-founder at Casper Labs. John and Greg, what are you looking forward to uh, learning from Meta today? Well, I, hey, I'm interested in talking we're, we're, we're both excited. We're chomping at the bit here. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm interested in hearing what uh, Casper Labs is working on a uh, blockchain platform for developers to use. So I'm really interested in their vision for that and how that will be used by various organizations. And it looks like they work with everything from companies to cities. Yeah, like that idea of applying blockchain, you know, we hear so much about the blockchain. And so we don't always, there's, there tends to be a pretty narrow group of things that, that they get applied to. It's like currencies that maybe most people in the real world don't care about. Uh, but when you, when you start to apply some of these technologies to, uh, well, apply blockchain to more real world applications, that gets super interesting. And I'm really interested in how, in the journey of how she got there, because I'm, you know, she didn't start off working, toiling away on this blockchain idea at the beginning of her, you know, high school or something like that. So, so how did she get from, from, from there to you know, this cutting edge and really cool stuff. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Okay, cool. All right. On with the show. Meta, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show today. I think what, what you guys are doing at Casper Labs, selfishly, I'm fascinated about and, and want to learn more about. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, small cool. town, just sure. south, ironically, south of the border of Detroit. Uh, little known fact that Windsor is actually about 20 miles south of Detroit. So it's uh, the southernmost point of Canada. Very cool. Isn't there like a bridge that you can walk across or something? Am I right? There, there's a bridge. Um, it's not quite walking distance, but yeah, okay. there's, there's a bridge and a tunnel. Yeah, that connects the two cities. Very cool. So walk us through... You went to university. What did you take and why? So I came, I came up in Canada through, um, you know, a first generation immigrant family. My mother and father uh, came from India. I'm of Indian origin. And like all good Indian uh, children, I aspired to go into either medicine or engineering. Okay. Uh, my parents had a rather large debate about what my academic uh, career would be. And my mother won. Um, so <laughs> I wound up going to school for pre-med. Um, I had aspirations to be a physician. And okay. it was actually while I was in college that I discovered, you know, this is the time of managed healthcare coming up. And, you know, I kind of had a revelation that um, I didn't really want to become a doctor. Um, so I did get my undergraduate in biology, undergraduate okay. degree in biology with the intention of going to medical school. But then I pivoted later in my life. Um, you know, before I turned 30, I went actually back into technology. And I was working in technology before that. My father introduced me to uh, computation and computing and personal computers in the early 80s. So he got his two cents in before mom even got got a chance up at the bat. <laughs> got you hooked early. Yes, I like yes, it. He did. He got me hooked early. <laughs> this, 
So walk us through the rest of your education and then your career, maybe some highlights and learnings along the way. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, uh, I had early expertise in technology. I had a PC on my desk, but really was kind of oblivious to how much of an outlier I was in that regard. Um, when after I got married, well, so after I got married, I moved to San Diego, California and needed to get a job and I just started working. And when I, you know, when I started working, it became obvious that I had a natural aptitude for technology um, because I wound up being kind of like the internal IT support in that organization. Interesting. And yeah, it was really about, you know, what I learned is that I, to really stay in tune with, sometimes people can observe uh, things about you that you can't observe yourself. And so the gentleman that was in charge, he was their IT consultant, you know, looked at me and he's like, you know, kid, you're pretty good at these things. Have you ever considered an education in that? And I had previously kind of, you know, written off, you know, becoming a technologist, but then I had to really sit back and think about what he said. And it was a very passing remark. I don't think he realized, you know, what a transformative uh, impact it had on me. That's but it awesome. was that, yeah. But after that, you know, after he dropped that hint, I did go back to school and, uh, you know, got formally educated in in computer software and programming. Okay. I already had a fairly deep IT, uh, you know, uh, bench in terms of, you know, laying cable and supporting operating systems and, you know, the internet and all that. So I, I felt that computer programming was way to go. And so I went ahead and got education in that and then, you know, transitioned fully for working for a software company and wrote some code. And then, you know, that was around the time of the dot-com boom. It was around Y2K, did some Y2K work. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, again, through my connections, um, was granted, given an opportunity to go work for mp3.com. And that was, for me, really transformative because the technology that they were building back then was really, really, you know, uh, leapfrogging what everybody else was doing in terms of internet technology. Back then, they were basically, you know, email and static websites was about the most complicated thing you got sure. a chance to work on. And if you had a chance to work on an e-commerce site, you were like really cutting edge. But mp3.com was already building, you know, YouTube back then yeah, they cool. already had youtube type technology for music and they actually built an mp mp4.com site so they actually had youtube um way way before it was even a glimmer in you know google's eye um so the technology they built was very very cutting edge um and really everything i learned there um on the job there allowed me to kind of catapult for the next 10 to 15 years in terms of my uh technical career, right? I knew sure. best practices that most companies had never even heard of. So I was very, very lucky uh, to have had the opportunity to work with such a stellar team. So how did you learn some of those things? Because it seems like back back then, and I think in a lot of cases now, were you self-taught? Were you reading books? Were you, well, I guess it was a little, obviously it was before kind of YouTube. Like, how are you learning some of these things? Was it just trial and error or, or walk us through that? Indeed. So I've always been somebody that's taken kind of ownership of my own learning uh, from a very early age, you know, uh, really hands on. I discovered that I learn best by doing and much, much more than reading. I tell people, if you can learn from reading, you really have a superpower. Uh, my daughter has a superpower. She she could learn about blockchain. She learned about blockchain in four weeks reading the Bitcoin white paper. And I'm like, wow, that's very impressive because for me, I have to learn hands on. Sure. So uh, I I had the opportunity to work with all these technologies on the job, right? So uh, I was able to 
uh, one, learn how the technologies work, but then more importantly than that, even learn like uh, business workflow and processes and best practices. I was functioning in a quality assurance, quality control role at mp3.com. And I have obviously had my formal education, in, you know, when I went back to school for computer programming and then really intersecting those two things in terms of learning the architect like I knew inherently the architecture of systems of computer systems. And then um, because I had worked with them again, hands on right. and then uh, at mp3.com learning the, you know, how to manage work streams of code across a large distributed team or a large team. Um, being able to apply that uh, really was like about kind of synthesizing that information and putting it together. Like this is how you rapidly build and deploy and test code. And it was a lot of trial and error, um, but it was also a lot of, you know, kind of watching and learning and, and, and doing from there. Interesting. Okay. So walk us through the rest of your career up until uh, Casper Labs, and then we'll get into that. Yeah, for sure. So after mp3.com, there was a bit of a dot-com boom bust, and right. I actually took the opportunity to not go into the office for a while, and I started managing a remote engineering team. Oh, so I had a small consultancy. Yes, I did some, I did some freelance work. Um, and I had a small consult consultancy that I was uh, doing offshore development work, actually, with a friend of mine uh, who had a business in India. And uh, I would do business development here in the U.S. And we would go ahead and get the technology, you know, the work built in, you know, I'd specify it in the U.S. And then he would right. go ahead and build it in India. And this was, again, before offshore development thing was actually, you know, it was actually a thing. It kind of grew out of a necessity and an opportunity because I had this friend in India that had his own tech company and he was looking for business in the United States. And so we actually built this offshore development model for software wow. way before anybody else was doing it. <laughs> you know, again, cool. this was, this was, this was interesting. This was in, in 2001 and 2002 that we were doing it and offshore development process, you know, sending work quote unquote offshore became a real big thing in about 2007, 2008, 2009. That's when you started seeing it really kind of take off and people having these remote development centers. And um, so what we learned, you know, what I learned there is when, you know, working with a remote team, you need to communication was really, really key. You needed to be able to have everything completely specified before you handed it off to your team so they could work overnight uninterrupted. Um, it taught me a lot about, you know, working from home and really organizing and structuring my time. I had small children then, so I had to carve out time, you know, uh, carve out time and really structure my day in such a way that I could get some work done. Um, while the kids were doing something else or were, you know, otherwise uh, occupied. And I did that for about four or five years and then went back to work in 2006. I went to go work for DivX. I did some part-time work for them. Cool. I learned a lot about, you know, embedded systems uh, working for DivX. And I did a lot of white box QA and kind of eased my family back into, you know, me going back to work uh, because I'd been away from work, you know, full-time work for about five years at that point. Right. And then from DivX, I went into web analytics. I went to go work for Website Story, which is a large, you know, it's a very, it was an iconic San Diego company, actually. They're, totally they're no longer, they're no longer around. They were acquired. I was there through the acquisition. Ultimately, they were acquired by Adobe. And when I was working there, one, I learned a lot about web analytics, but I also learned that sometimes some of the dark trades are the ones that are the most cutting edge with technology, you know, between Website Story and MP3.com. I learned that both of those companies, I'm sorry, not mp3.com, DivX. Um, I learned that both of those companies actually got their starts, believe it or not, in the adult film industry. And that the adult film industry and these kinds of, you know, what do you want to call it, black market or less yeah. than, you know, 
mainstream type industries actually are really, really cutting edge when it comes to technology. They're always looking how to optimize. There's a lot of money in it, unfortunately. And um, they're able to really optimize their adoption of technology. So, you know, unbeknownst to most, DivX, uh, they were a video compression company and they got their start, you know, in the adult film industry. They were finding a way to send out high definition video over the Internet. And they use the DivX Codet. They were very early adopters. And similarly with web analytics, they actually use a lot of web analytics tools as well. And so Website Story um, was one of the you know service providers for these websites. It was only you know web analytics content that we were looking at, but learned a lot about analytics and and uh, you know business intelligence right through that time. And totally, they yeah. yeah, and a lot of software as a service because uh, software uptime was really really big. Um, just like it was with mp3.com similarly with web analytics you know uh, uptime is key and you know learning how to uh, manage large amounts of sensitive data um, with a high and high availability zones was something that i learned as you know the director of quality assurance and release manager right i also uh, experienced a theme where i would go into organizations and they would tell me well you know we can't seem to ship our code or keep our customers happy Right. And so it was very much with a quality assurance bent that I would go in, but I found that eventually I wound up program managing a lot of these projects where I would not only help get the software tested, but also, you know, provide insight into what was actually required in a given release and was it considered risky or not, which is more of a program management type of stakeholder, you know, type of role that I would take. Uh, to help make sure that we could get the software across the finish line, you know. So I was with uh, with that role. I was there all the way up through the Adobe acquisition, and I became their senior manager of worldwide quality. And I learned a lot and was able to apply a lot of the the knowledge that I had around managing remote teams because my teams were were remote. I was working remotely, fully remotely by then, um, and you know, wound up spending a bulk of my career as a remote executive, right? Engineering executive and really bootstrapping again, everything that I learned way back when in 2002, 2003 around, you know, man, doing this, you know, offshore development cycle type of type of uh, offshore development center type of model, right? Where communication was clear, you had to decentralize all of your communications operations so you can make information readily available for your team. You had to make sure everybody knew their goal and vision. And people were empowered to play the role that they knew how to do, you know, knew how to play. So, uh, yeah, that was all the way up through Adobe and then went to go work um, after Adobe. I left Adobe because I got bored and then uh, went to go work for a few more small startups uh, where I learned how to do program management and product management. And then ultimately landed at Avalara in 2011. And that's when I joined. They were there in financial services. Uh, they did sales tax calculation. And I joined them as again as a director of quality control, and then rapidly pivoted into a full-blown, you know, director of engineering, senior director of engineering. Um, my goal was to manage an engineering team at that point and to go beyond just quality assurance in my career. And uh, managed uh, the Avalara sales tax engine, uh, their core product, Avatax, and then some of their compliance offerings, as well as being responsible for whole programs at that point in time, uh, where I was responsible for the PNL. Um, hiring, you know, obviously I always managed hiring, firing, that was nothing new, but then um, uh, really being in charge of the entire product lifecycle and customer retention and, and more strategic goals for the company. And I was with them until 2016 and then, you know, pivoted into blockchain in 2017. Interesting. So 
what exactly is Casper Labs and how did you come up with the idea for it? I fell into the blockchain hole and, you know, rabbit hole in 2017 through a friend of mine from Avalara. Um, a lot of these roles that I got really came out of relationships, uh, people that I knew, right? And this was no different. And uh, he wanted me to help him run, you know, run a, an engineering team because that was my strength uh, was really, right. you know, how to, was to you know, manage teams and get them to do their best work. And so got into blockchain through that project and ultimately that project failed uh, due to a governance issue, you know, a fiscal, you know, mismanagement issue. And the investors in that project didn't want to see their investment, you know, be lost. And so they approached me to recapitalize the project under a new structure. And that's how Casper Labs was born. Um, myself and six other co-founders founded the company. And yeah, you know, two and a half years later, we launched Mainnet, the Casper protocol, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So you said earlier that you don't really find, or you learn by trial and error, not really reading. How did you learn about kind of the blockchain and what you needed to know to actually found uh, Casper Labs? So this is this is one of the epiphanies that I had in this journey. I think you know, uh, founding Casper Labs and and the time spent between you know 2017 and now, I've had a lot of epiphanies on this journey. And one of the epiphanies was that I learned by by doing. Sure. And in that role, when I when I kind of got into the blockchain space, I was uh, assigned the responsibility of the program manager for the project, and which is more than a project manager. It was uh, to work with the engineers to, you know, specify the releases. I had to do more than just manage the project. I actually had to determine how the project evolved. So to take the project from an idea or a nascent idea and get it to a full-fledged running blockchain. And the team was counting on me to define how this project went from just an idea to really functioning, right? So what are the order in which you build software. And it was up to me to work with the engineers to specify everything that needed to be built. And it took about, I ran the project for about 14 months. And during that time, it was really, really difficult for me to, you know, kind of connect the dots on how this thing worked, okay. what it was, what are the things it needed to do? How did the components interact? Even though I was specifying the releases and ensuring that everything was hit in terms of a given milestone, I didn't feel like I could really explain to an, you know, a 15 year old or a 14 year old or 13 year old what the blockchain was. And to me, if the way you demonstrate real competency in a subject is your ability to explain it to somebody that doesn't understand it at all. Sure. And so in evaluating my own depth of understanding, it was, I was, it was very clear to me that I didn't understand it fully. And, and those were long, long days. I was working 12 to 14 hour days for the entire duration because I was struggling mightily with my, my own comprehension. And in fact, you know, one of the principals in the project felt that I wasn't quote unquote smart enough to do this job. Right. Oh, because, wow. Yeah. Because he, you know, it was, it was, uh, I think that they saw that I didn't really deeply understand the subject matter. But so the interesting thing was when the software got to a point where it was actually a working piece of software and everything came together at that point, all, and I was able to actually run the software on my computer. That is when all the building blocks just kind of came, it, everything just came together for me. 
And it was at that moment when I started actually working with the software, using the software, testing the software hands-on, that I had the epiphany that I learn by doing. And it was at that moment in time that all of my understanding, all the, you know, the year of work that I had put in to that point, everything just came together and it all the all the puzzle pieces just clicked into place. And from that point on, I completely understood what blockchain was, how it works. And my understanding since then has only deepened through building the Casper network, right? Sure. Um, and the understanding of consensus protocol. So for me, that was the epiphany is that I learned by doing. It also explains when I look back all the years that I was in quality control because quality control really focuses on working software, right? So right. it focuses on working software. It's you interact with the software to test it. It's not an ephemeral piece of code where you have to imagine how it fits into the broader system. And I suspect this is why a lot of people really don't understand blockchain technologies because you have to understand it by just reading it. I think a lot of people learn by doing. And in, in most people's everyday interactions with blockchain, you know, it's kind of like, do you really understand how Visa is processing your credit card transaction? You don't. You just trust yeah. that it works, right? Yeah. The same thing will happen with blockchain. But I think people want to really understand it. And it's hard to understand if you don't get to work with the software itself. Sure. Okay. So this is kind of going to be a counterintuitive question, but how do you explain the blockchain to people? And then how does that apply to Casper Labs and letting people actually use what you guys are building in enterprise? Yeah. So the way I would sum up blockchain is if you think of the internet protocol as an information protocol, you can think of the blockchain as a trust protocol. Okay. Any information that passes through the blockchain can now be trusted, right? So if you want right. to take, like, what is the tagline of blockchain technology? It's a trust protocol. Blockchain also isn't cryptocurrency, right? So you can have blockchain without cryptocurrency, but you can't have cryptocurrency without blockchain. And the reason for that is you can't trust anything in the cryptocurrency without the blockchain trust layer. Right. So right now, when we transact with a bank or transact with the government, we inherently trust the bank. We inherently well, supposedly trust the government. Right. We trust the government uh, to issue the money and we trust the bank to keep track of our account balances. Right. That translates to the blockchain in that you trust the blockchain. So the blockchain is really a trust protocol. Going into the details of the blockchain, it's a group of servers that all agree on a set of transactions. Right. They agree on the set of transactions through this mathematical mechanism called a consensus protocol that solves a very specific computer science or computer engineering problem known as the Byzantine generals problem. And that's a little technical, but you can Google it if you're really interested in, in understanding underneath how it works. Um, but basically it's a fault tolerant, fault resistant protocol. And what makes it so trustworthy is that you don't know who's participating in the protocol, right? So imagine you have a bunch of random people and they all agree to communicate through some protocol that is guaranteed that all the messages that are transmitted are the same. They all agree that, yes, you know, this thing happened, right? And because you know you don't trust them, you know that there's no cabals formed, right? right. Nobody's colluding. And that's really the like the high value, like the value proposition of the blockchain is that, you know, you can't like the bank can arbitrarily change something if they decide to change something or Facebook can arbitrarily change something if they decide to change something. And the blockchain doesn't work that way. Right. 
it's right. it's much more immutable. It can't things can't be changed on it, and so you can get some trust guarantees from that. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, how does a company leverage the Casper Labs technology to actually do development and and build this layer of trust into what they're doing? Yeah. So, imagine if you have a business process that somehow is streamlined, it, it becomes streamlined if now suddenly you can trust the data. And there's some very good real world examples for that, right? So a great example is intellectual property. So the buying and selling of intellectual property is a very hard thing to do. Right. And the reason for that is it's really hard to determine who owns a piece of intellectual property. But if you could register that, let's say every time a patent is approved from the patent office, and the patent office then says, well, so-and-so filed this patent and we're registering the owner of the patent as X on the blockchain. Now you can trust that that person owns the patent. And right. if that person chooses to sell the patent to somebody else, okay, great. So they sell the patent, they can transfer that ownership of the patent to another person. And now that transfer of ownership is registered in the blockchain. And now you can get some guarantees around, hey, if I want to buy that patent, this is the owner, this is who I should contact, right? So it's, it's possible to now buy and sell intellectual property because you know patents are registered on the Casper blockchain. And it wasn't very easy to do that before. So now once you have a list of owners, and a list of items, you can create a marketplace, right? Before there was no marketplace. There was no marketplace to buy intellectual, buy and sell intellectual property. But now you can build a marketplace around this because now you know who owns it and you know what they own. And there's a way for them to transfer ownership, right? After some commercial terms through this marketplace. Similarly, if you can imagine, you know, something as simple as clinical trial data, while there's a lot of HIPAA, you know, regulations around publicly sharing clinical trial data, there's also challenges with even trusting that clinical trial data hasn't been tampered with. And we all see stories about, oh, so-and-so tampered with the clinical trial data because the drug was worth billions of dollars, right? How can mm -hmm. you trust the clinical trial data? Because there's huge incentives, right, to push a drug out to market. And there may not be trust around the data. But if you can record the clinical trial data to a blockchain, you can then get some guarantees that the data hasn't been tampered with. No single person is able to modify that clinical trial data. You can get some proofs around, you know, how safe the drug is. You can also, you know, shorten the amount of time it takes to audit those clinical, that clinical trial data. Because right now the audit period is actually double of the collection period. Um, because the audits need to go through, you know, multiple layers of security and multiple multiple different reviews to, again, ensure, because it is life's, lives we're talking about here, right? The safety of drugs is really, really critical. But what if you could shorten that, get, get greater guarantees, get more transparency, and bring better drugs to market faster? How great would that be, right? Um, totally. It would be amazing, right? So these are some of the applications you can use blockchain technology for. And note, none of these have anything to do with cryptocurrency, right? These are right. pure blockchain technology we're talking about here. It has nothing to do with crypto. So I think, I think blockchain really presents phenomenal opportunities for society as a whole. And companies can definitely take advantage of it if they want to learn how to streamline information, firewall off information, right? So let's say, for example, with 
you're working in a financial institution and I have to provide all this data to a financial institution, right? And how many times do we hear about data breaches, right? Where yep. my personal information is, right? And the reason for that is these organizations sometimes have to share this data with their internal departments for you know, approving you for additional products or they might have to do some kind of reporting, right? But from an internal security perspective, these financial organizations don't even like to have your personally identifiable information available, right? Right. What if you could just, you know, firewall it away with a with a information technology provider that, you know, encrypts your data and just gives them a token and says, I certify, right? Like a notarized token. I certify that this person has passed this level of KYC. And I certify that this is their credit score. You know, there's no need for you to do an additional inquiry. You can trust this token, right? Interesting. Fascinating, really. Yeah. So then now your information is securely encrypted and it's firewalled off. And then, you know, financial service providers can get some guarantees around that you are, in fact, a real person, right? That you have this credit score, that you own a house. They don't need to know where your house is. They don't need to know, you know, who you're employed with. They just need to know that you're gainfully employed and you've been employed for three years. And, right, it's a, right. It's a, it's a Fortune 500 company. That's all that they need to know, right? They don't need to know any of the other details. And so this, again, these are some of the other really cool applications of blockchain technology that I expect are being are going to be adopted by companies. So just so me and the listener can fully understand is you can verify I am who I say I am or have done the things I say I have done without basically giving up super personal identifiable information because to your point you say like kevin lives here he's worked at this this huge national company for three years you can approve him but you don't need to say like which company what my actual address is or potentially even my name is that correct yeah i mean exactly right that's exactly right like for example all you need to know is that i'm authorized to work in the united states you don't need to actually okay. have my social security number right, right. All you need to know is that I make, if, if, if your threshold is I need to earn $100,000 a year, either I'm above that or I'm below that. Right. You don't need to know exactly what my compensation is. You just need to, and almost all of these kinds of decisions are really binary, right? They're like, okay, is he above or below this, right? Is he, is he a U.S. citizen or is he not? Is he, you know, does he have a record or does he not? Like, these are all very binary decisions with, and there's no need to expose that level of information or that level of detail and open yourself to that risk. And the blockchain can absolutely provide those kinds of answers. Yeah. And, and that's what I think is so fascinating about and what you guys are doing and, and blockchain technology allows is it almost allows for, because not everybody wants their per, all their personal information with certain companies. Some do, some don't. And like, I would even say with like social media sites, like some people are fine giving more information to one company over another. Right. And it's nice to be able to have that kind of give as much as you want or kind of be a little bit more anonymous depending on your comfort level and, and what they really need from you. Because you're right. If it's like, does Kevin make over a hundred grand? Yes or no. You just need to check one box, right? You don't need to know the actual number. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So as a developer, how hard is it to actually get up or and get started doing development and integrating with the technology that you guys have built at Casper Labs? 
So we pride ourselves in bringing cast, bringing blockchain actually to enterprise. And okay. a lot of the blockchain projects out there require you kind of throw out everything you've learned before and start anew with the blockchain, quote unquote, ecosystem. They call it like the blockchain ecosystem, you know, the yeah. Ethereum ecosystem. <laughs> or So the Casper, quote unquote, ecosystem is more like the traditional development ecosystem. So we bring Casper to IT, right? We bring blockchain to, to, to the traditional technology ecosystem, right? Versus, you know, having to, you know, cross over into the blockchain space, right? And a lot of these blockchain protocols out there use custom programming languages. They have totally. custom tool sets. They're using these weird interpreters, right? And then there's this long, complicated way to build. You have to run a full blockchain node in order to write or run contracts or even a light client in order to write or write contracts, right? So developers that are used to working in a certain way are not able to do that when you work with most of the projects out there. And so Casper protocol and Casper Labs specifically is we built our technology stack in a manner that it's very familiar, right? Um, the way it works is very familiar from an enterprise application development perspective. And we believe that the overwhelming majority of developers have never been exposed to blockchain, right? And so right. our belief is to make that as easy a transition as possible. So it's pretty easy. If you know C, C++, you can get started in about three to four weeks. There's lots of open source repositories for people to get involved with, uh, with Casper, a lot of example code and tutorials and education. Um, and you know, it is the number one job, right? Blockchain is a very big, hot phrase right now. If you're in technology and you're looking for the next big thing, right? Uh, dive in and it's pretty easy to get hands-on, right? You can get hands-on very simply. Well, and it's interesting that you say like up and running kind of in, three to four weeks, that's a very short period of time to basically move into an up and coming industry if it's not already there, right? Like it's a mainstream industry. I just think there's a shortage of people in it. And if you can be basically up and running in a, you know, a month time frame and be valuable to enterprise, you know, that's a pretty good uh, transition or career transition, right? Definitely. I mean, I think I think blockchain technology is here to stay. I don't think anybody anybody questions that or doubts that now. Totally uh, I think we all agree it's going to be here to stay. Enterprises are really, really looking at how to use this. And I think there's going to be a blockchain team in every single company, right? Like any any company that has runs their own infrastructure yeah. and their own technology, you're going to have somebody that's on a blockchain team, right? There's right. no question about it. Sure. Well, even uh, if you're not hosting like externally too, right? Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I think any department that has their own IT team, yeah. IT group is going to have a blockchain group in that IT group, right? Gotcha. So if there's an IT okay. group in your company, there's going to be a blockchain group in there, right? Or if you're a software company, absolutely, right? You'll have an entire blockchain division if you if you're if you're working for a SaaS software provider today. Um, and majority of software today is SaaS, right? There's no shrink wrap yeah. software anymore. Everything is client server SaaS software. Um, so definitely 100%. There's going to be a way you will be interacting with blockchain technology for sure. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm curious, is there, because you've been obviously doing the remote uh, thing for, for a long time now, and I think a lot of companies, especially bigger companies, seem to be struggling a bit with it or they're going to implement some sort of hybrid model. Do you have any advice or things that you've seen 
work when you've uh, done this remote stuff and, and managed teams and, and pushed code? Because that can be one of the challenging things. It's not really that hard to get people to write code. It's really hard to get people to write good tested code that's not going to break things, especially at an enterprise. Yeah, 100%. So <clears throat> yes, so it's it's a challenge. Um, having teams uh, work, uh, so the Casper protocol, you know, the Casper Labs team is 100% remote. We have over 40 engineers now working uh, from all over the world. Um, I've managed, you know, partially remote teams up to 75 individuals. Wow. And um, what I can tell you is there's a couple of things you want to ensure that people can do. One, you know, as a, you need your leaders to set a very clear vision and target, and that probably needs to be no longer than three months maximum. Okay. Um, so tight targets is really, really important. Number two, using uh, some form of a wiki or, you know, asynchronous, I call it asynchronous communication, right? So where people can collaborate, even Google Docs is a great way to do remote collaboration. Um, writing, having a culture of documentation is massively, massively important. Um, most enterprises run into a problem where you have a lot of tribal knowledge and the tribal knowledge gets so bad where there's one dude that knows how the whole system works, right? right. And what you really need to do is move away from the a culture of, of verbal communication to a culture of written communication. And, um, and, you know, you can use collaboration tools like Slack, right? Everybody has heard of Slack for business um, or Discord. These are, you know, instant messaging. That kind of takes place at the shoulder tap, right? The in-person shoulder tap where you walk up to somebody, tap the shoulder, you know, in, in a remote distributed team, you're, you're sending a Slack message. But even that, you know, you kind of run into a danger where you've got a whole bunch of your tribal knowledge locked up in Slack, right? Yeah. So investing in uh, giving your engineers both the, uh, you know, stressing the importance of writing down and specifying what it is they're building and why it's important is hugely, is, is a big, is a big focus item. Making sure the code is well-documented with comments so people can work reasonably independently. Three, having a continuous integration pipeline and a focus on testing is massively important, right? And that that is something that's kind of table stakes. It's it's almost always the number one thing I would do when I come in as a you know head of quality control or quality assurance is that you need to set up continuous integration and you need to do configuration management with your pipelines. Right? This is a very technical term, but basically it's an assembly line for software. So you need to make sure you have an assembly line for your software, right? Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is, is provide space for the team to get together. Right. So the Casper Labs team does do offsites. We okay. haven't been able to because of COVID and the team really missed that. But we did horse trade instead of spending money on, you know, an office building or office space. We would spend it on offsites. Right. Where the team would right. get together and do planning and have an opportunity to get to know each other. And you can have small localized offsites instead of a big bang offsite, depending on the size of your team and empower and encourage your leaders, you know, an opportunity for the teams to get together, right? Um, these are like the really big things. And then it, it goes a little bit more into culture where, you, you know, people, you want to hire people that are, uh, that have a strong desire um, to be, they're, they're intrinsically motivated, right? And so they really love, you know, kind of shaping their own future and working on things. They have a strong desire, right, to work autonomously. 
And that's something that we do look for at Casper, right? And right. A lot of pair programming, right? So you can buddy up and have, you know, working sessions together over a Zoom call, right? So Zoom has been Zoom or Google Hangouts, which is what we're using today, yep. um, it are, are really great, you know, for, for collabing. Interesting that you mentioned pair programming. I, I do it all the time and I find it actually really useful. What do you say to the people that think it's just you're pay basically paying two people to do one person's job or, or some variation of that? Like, like obviously it's working for you. You you agree with it, but I've heard quite a bit of pushback in my career from different types of people, especially in some of the bigger companies. And and what do you say to them, you know, or the naysayers of that? Yeah. So what I say to them is you never want to have a bus factor of one with your code, right? You always want to have at least two or three people understanding how the code works. Right. Right. To so, your earlier point, right? Like don't have yeah. one person that knows everything. That's exactly right. Right. So when you do pair programming, it offers a couple of opportunities. One, you can you can pair a junior programmer with a senior programmer and um, you're ramping up that junior programmer onto what the senior programmer does. He's learning his He's learning about his coding style. He's learning about, you know, he's learning about the system, right? They're talking sure. through the code and the implementation together, particularly if they're solving a tricky problem. These are not eight-hour sessions. Usually they're two to three-hour sessions where the senior programmer can say, okay, you need to update this, 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 this here, right? They work through it together. You also want to have a strong culture of code reviews, right? So every, yeah. every pull request in Casper um, is code reviewed by at least two people. And so when you do pair programming, it also shortens the code review process because they've already set expectations about what the code looks like. Right. It also provides immediate feedback, right? right? So you're providing immediate feedback to that junior engineer. It's very rare now at Casper that you have two senior engineers doing a pair programming session unless they're working through a really difficult problem, in which case they may get, you know, you may see two senior engineers or two principals on, on a single pair programming session. Um, but it, I think, you know, from a cross-training perspective, it's great. From a morale perspective, it's great. It gives immediate feedback, you know, when you're looking at code reviews coupled with pair programming. And honestly, like, if you think about the cost of a bug, right, uh, deep code reviews and solid pair programming is the best way to prevent bugs, right? It is sure. the number, and, and bugs are expensive, right? Yep. Bugs can be very, in crypto, sometimes bugs are like hundreds of millions of dollars if you think about <laughs> yeah. what happened recently in crypto, right? So bugs are expensive and preventing bugs um, outweighs, outweighs this idea that, you know, you'll just want one developer working on a, on a problem. Sure. Well, and I think, and you could tell me if you disagree with this, but I also think you're training your people a lot faster and no matter where you are skill level or in your career, you can always learn something from somebody that's more junior than you and from somebody that's more senior than you. Do you, do you agree with that? I think there's, yes. I mean, you know, people at Casper Labs, is, I believe that they should feel like 80% successful in their job, right? You should always feel about 80% totally. successful, right? Because then, then you know you're growing. And sometimes the growth is soft. Sometimes the growth is hard technical skills. But yeah, like when you are when you are mentoring someone junior and you're a senior guy and they just don't understand what you're saying, you know, that's a soft skill, right? So the senior guy I think is learning soft skills. The junior guy I think is learning hard skills. Um, it's pretty rare that the junior guy is going to teach the senior guy any hard skills, but he is definitely teaching him soft skills because he's learning how to mentor and train. And I find a lot, a lot of times working in technology, we often have 
technical managers that are either very strong technically or they're very strong management. Finding someone that is both technically, that has both the hard skills and the soft skills is very, very challenging, right? So, you know, at Casper, what we're doing, Casper Labs, we're doing is we are taking our folks with the hard skills and we're training them on the soft skills, right? So we can kind of, you know, express that leadership skill and, and our way of thinking and our way of doing things all the way down through the ranks. No, I, I think that's really good advice. But I'm I'm curious, is there anything that you've learned kind of in your personal life outside of your day-to-day -day business uh, life that you've actually been able to apply back into Casper Labs and other companies you've worked at? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. I don't even know where to begin. Um, so um, there's there's uh, several podcasts. I love the Tim Ferriss show. Like that's a great podcast okay. in terms of, you know, personal hacks and productivity. I've recently started using, you know, the full focus planner from Michael Hyatt. Okay. Um, he's a, he's a great, you know, he's a gr fantastic entrepreneur. Um, I like to read a lot of books around, you know, uh, I like to learn a lot from other, from other entrepreneurs. Right. So I like right. to listen to podcasts that teach a lot, talk a lot about leadership, right. And some of the skills around, around leadership. Um, and so I can always, always be trying to learn try a lot to do reading. I try to, you know, spend a good amount of time on reading um, and, and networking. I think I'm not a particularly strong networker. And in my role, I need to, you know, meet a lot of people and and get to know, get to know a lot of people. So this is something, this is an area where I'm working on um, quite a bit and reading a lot of books around, you know, uh, how, to, how to persuade people, right? Um, how to convince people. This is going to be a big thing for Casper um, as we work into, you know, um, you know, the larger decentralized community as how I can help encourage them to understand what are the things that are important for the protocol right. um, and get buy-in. So, you know, those are a lot of the areas where I'm, I'm personally working, um, spending a lot of time, a lot of time trying to grow into these big shoes. I got big shoes to fill. <laughs> no, fair enough. So I, I'm curious, obviously, you know, you're in C-suite and you're busy, how do you actually find time to listen to podcasts and, and read books and, you know, even just enjoy some of that personal time and make time for, for these things? I just, you have to just prioritize it. It really comes down to just making it a priority. Um, there are days and you have to kind of check in with yourself and really see what it is you need at a given point in time. Um, I feel like not every single day is balanced, but if I find that the entire week is balanced, I, I consider it a win. Um, there are some days where I focus a lot on work. I'm, I'm working a really, really long day. And then there's other days where I'm focusing a lot on the family or I'm focusing a lot on friends or I'm focusing a lot on my planning. Right. So I feel like any, I, I don't think that every single day is perfectly balanced. Right. Um, I do, I do try to read before I go to bed. Otherwise I just can't turn my brain off. Right. So okay. there needs to be something fairly, you know, benign <laughs> that I read before I go to sleep. Otherwise, if I get to, you know, if I'm too mentally stimulated, then it's very, very hard for me. It's hard for me to shut, shut my brain off. And I, I prioritize sleep. Uh, sleep is extremely important to me. Um, so if I was to tell people like, if you want to be your very best, what's, what's, what are the two big things, two big levers you need to turn is what you eat and how much you sleep. So I'm, I'm extremely conscientious about, about that. 
No, I, I, I think that's that's really good advice. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Casper Labs, and anything else you want to mention? Sure. Um, Casperlabs.io is our company website. Uh, Casper.network is all about the public network. Um, if you want to get to know me a little bit more, you're welcome to follow me on Twitter. I'm at mparlicar. Um, I have my moments on Twitter, so it's uh, always fun to interact with folks on Twitter. So yeah, follow me there. Perfect, Meta. I really appreciate you again taking the time to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Same to you, Kevin. Thank you. Okay, bye. Well, John and Greg, what did you guys think of that? Oh, it was really interesting. I was uh, interested in her, in her journey from when she first started in the tech industry and how she she got into being a developer. And then uh, I was really interested in, in her uh, present uh, company uh, and how they're applying blockchain um, for both uh, her examples were know your customer applications and then also with um, clinical trials. That was really interesting. And it made me start to think of like how blockchain can be applied in other ways. Yeah, that was super cool. I, I'm 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 really excited to see what happens for her company because those uh, ideas around application of blockchain it's super cool, and she's fantastic. Also, I just have to say that she seems really like awesome. But I, one of the things I took away was actually the the she said how she took ownership of her own learning, and I loved that. I thought that was so cool, and that's something that I'd take away from her, and something I'd want to kind of pass on to my kids too. You know, just take ownership of your own learning as you go. That's brilliant. Yeah, and Thank for me, I'm kind of the same way with like learning is I'm more of like a trial and error type. And so sometimes like everybody forces you to do certain things and it's like, well, I really like trial and error. And she talked about how, yeah. um, and she didn't really understand the blockchain until she actually started using and, and testing the product. And I, I think mm. I'm like that sometimes too. It's like, I don't really Me fully too. understand something until I actually can like play with it. Yeah. So I thought it was cool. Brilliant. Love it. Thank you for tuning in to the learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with two L's at www.learner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.